A reading from John. Then Jesus told the disciples plainly, Lazarus is dead. For your sake I am glad I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. Thomas, who is called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, Let us also go, that we may die with him. When Jesus arrived, he found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb four days. His sister Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that God will give you whatever you ask of him. Jesus said to her, Your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection on the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Those who believe in me, even though they die, will live. And everyone who lives and believes in me will never die. A reading from 1 Corinthians. Look, I will tell you a mystery. We will not all die, but we will all be changed. And in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For this perishable body must put on imperishability, and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the, this perishable body puts on imperishability, and this mortal body puts on immortality, then the saying that is written will be fulfilled. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O oh death, is your victory? Where, O oh death, is your sting? And a reading from Romans. Do you not know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? Therefore, we were buried with him by baptism into death, so that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, so we also might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we will certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. But if we died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. Words of God, words of life. Today is the final installment of our grief and loss series. So as always, if you need to take a break from listening and step out, do so. Let me know if I've hit on something especially hard or sensitive, especially if it's potentially harmful to you or others. And again, we are using a clinical model to guide our series discussions, but this is not a replacement for any specific work you may need to do with a licensed mental health professional. So be in touch with the therapist as needed. The model that we are using comes from grief researcher and psychologist William Warden, who over the last 40 to 50 years has identified, developed, and refined what he calls four tasks of mourning. So a quick review of the first three. Task one is to accept the reality of the loss. This requires both intellectual and emotional acceptance. The fact, like my husband is dead, 
and letting go of vain and practical hope that he will be there if I reach over to feel him on his side of the bed. Task two is to process the pain of a grief. Grief hurts. Emotionally, physically, it hurts. And it sucks. We like to avoid, deny, push down pain. But if we are successful at not dealing with our pain, we prolong our grief, and our emotional pain may turn into physical symptoms or abnormal behaviors. Task three is to adjust to a world without the deceased. Proving that mourning takes time, this task acknowledges that often for months we don't even know what all we have lost when someone dies. And in this, we have three areas of adjustment. We have external adjustments, or how the death affects one's everyday functioning in the world. We have internal adjustments, or how the death affects one's sense of self. And there are spiritual adjustments, or how the death affects one's beliefs, values, and assumptions about the world. And now we come to task four to find a way to remember the deceased while embarking on the rest of one's journey through life. Warden shares that early on, in the mid-70s to early 80s, he defined this fourth task as withdrawing emotional energy from the deceased and reinvesting it in another relationship. But then he continues to say, we now know that people do not decathect from the dead but find ways to remember the deceased. So as a personal aside, I very much appreciate that Warden, who is 90 this year, so freely shares pieces of his own lifelong learning from others' research and how it has helped to improve his own research and work. Because of Warden and his contemporaries' work, we have learned a lot about grief just in the last half century such as where we used to think it was best to just kind of let go of people close to us when they died, as if death is the end period full stop. We now know that not only do we not withdraw all of our emotional energy from loved ones who have died, it is also healthy and good for us to carry those relationships forward with us in some form as we continue to live our lives. Research is telling us that it is normal and expected for us to find and develop continuing bonds with deceased loved ones. Kids often report still feeling the presence of a dead parent. We'll talk to them. We complete our mourning, the process of adapting to the death of a person, when we no longer need to reactivate some exaggerated representation of the dead in our daily lives. Or to put that another way, we complete our mourning when our readiness to enter new relationships no longer depends on us giving up the deceased, but instead we find a suitable place for them in our psychological life that also makes room for others. We continue to have what we lost 
but in a new, transformed way. Like a child, including some representation of a deceased parent in life events, or honoring anniversaries you shared with a spouse or partner, maybe even as you enter into a new romantic partnership. Borden tells us it is difficult to define what non-completion of this fourth task looks like. Perhaps, he says, the best description would be not living. Have you ever looked back at a span of your life following a significant loss and thought, wow, did my life end? Like, it just stopped. Maybe like you crawled into the grave with your loved one or you found yourself unable to function after losing a job. Or you wondered, now what? When a relationship ended, taking with you all of your plans for your shared life together. Or think about popular music and how the lyrics often wax elegant over never finding love again, which only gives a false validity to the notion of one's life being over. Like it is difficult to define what non-completion of this task looks like, Warden says that for many, this is a difficult task to accomplish because it's very common for us to get stuck at the point of a loss. Like we look back at our lives and realize that nothing really happened for a while. He quotes a young woman whose father had died two years before. As this woman was beginning to work through task four, she wrote to her mother from college saying, there are other people to be loved, and it doesn't mean that I love dad any less. So another reminder, grieving is a fluid process, and it's influenced by a number of factors, including kinship, relationship, nature of the death or loss, your own history of grieving, your personality, different social variables, and what other losses and stressors are happening at the same time. The tasks we've been discussing can be worked together. They can be worked repeatedly over time. You might find yourself working them in different orders. The mental health field tells us, and rightly so, that death does not have to be the end. We can find and develop healthy and helpful ways to remember and stay connected with loved ones and thus keep them alive in memory. This is true whether we use Warden's tasks of mourning or another clinical model to help us describe and process our grief. Alongside that, our Christian faith tells us that death is not the end trusting in the promises of the resurrection, the enduring connections we have with departed loved ones can be a foretaste of life eternal. And this is true whether we are having a day of great belief, a day of a great doubt, or any other sort of day. In our readings today, Jesus grieves for his friend who is dead, and he knows, and Martha knows, that their beloved Lazarus will rise again. 
even being the resurrection and life, breathing proof that though we die, we live. Jesus' own humanness models the naturalness of grief. Paul writes to the Corinthian and Roman communities about death and life, mortality and immortality, and union with Christ in death and resurrection. Death of the flesh, whatever losses we grieve, is not the final word, even in this life. In baptism, we die to our old selves, drowning in the water, and then we rise again from the depths of the grave to new life. In grief, what has been ceases to be, and a part of us does kind of die with what has been lost. And then we make room for new love, and we rise again. God, who has created us for relationship, who has joined us in fleshy living to intimately know the hurts and happies of humanity, loves us in joy and sorrow, and has provided abundantly for our living, our dying, our loving, our grieving, and our resurrection. While our grief over the loss of life relationships, jobs, health, any number of other losses that we grieve. While our grief over loss ebbs and flows throughout our lives, we are assured by faith in the promises of the resurrection. Like Jesus from the tomb, we rise and love again. Life in God has the final word. Amen.